So the reason why I love history is because I think it sits at the intersection of social science and humanities. And so what I mean by that is um, social scientists believe that there is such a thing as truth. So they're constantly striving to find the truth. That's the scientist in them, right? And in humanities, everything is a story. Everything is constructed. And so history as a discipline actually sits right at that intersection where there's this, this tension of I'm looking for truth and yet I kind of know there's no such thing. And that was the voice of today's amazing guest, Julie Pham. Can't wait to dive in. But before we do, just wanted to remind everyone that I am running a promotion from now through the end of 2021. Five-star rating and review gets you a mug and or a sticker from Diversity on Fire. Yours truly. Yay. Hop on over there and don't forget to rate and review. It is definitely important for our growth and it really does help more people find the show so we can keep the conversation going. Welcome back to Diversity on Fire. Our goal is to inspire you to think more deeply and act with more knowledge and compassion. We'll do this by sharing our open conversations on all types of diversity-related topics. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Julie Pham, who is a Vietnamese-born, American-raised refugee, Cambridge-trained social scientist, an organizational developmental leader or development leader, an award-winning cross-sector collaborator and community organizer, and an expert on respect. She has founded Seven Forms of Respect, is the CEO of Curiosity Based, co-founder of Northwest Vietnamese News, public speaker, and way too much more for me to mention right now. So I'm super excited. Julie, welcome to Diversity on Fire. Thank you so much, Heather. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, I'm super excited to uh, to have you. Honestly, I'm like, whew, I don't know where to start or where to go because you have so much that we could touch on. Um, but usually what I do is I start with just getting a little personal. So would you give kind of the Cliff Notes version of Intro to Julie? Yes. So some things that are really important about my identity, I was born in Vietnam and my, I, I came to uh, the U.S. with my parents as boat people in 1979. I was a uh, not quite two months old, um, and we settled in Seattle. And uh, my American name is Julie, and uh, my parents gave me, that to me when I was five years old, registering for kindergarten. Um, and my Vietnamese name is Hoi Hung, which means to remember your homeland. And I feel comfortable with both. I, I don't feel um, I don't feel like I have two different um, identities that I have to choose between. I feel like I get to. I get to have these two different names. I love that. So I'm the annoying friend that's that likes to call people by their their first name, their original first name. And so I've done that with a couple friends, but the problem is is I oftentimes pronounce them wrong. So they're like, "Well, it's okay. We it's okay, but And Heather, actually, I prefer if you don't know how to pronounce the name, just call me Julie. So in English, yeah. I go by Julie, and when I'm speaking in Vietnamese, I go by Hương or Hoi Hương. So it's it's more like I feel intimate when I'm speaking in Vietnamese to be called by my Vietnamese name, and actually I feel when I'm speaking in English to be to use my my English name. So it's it's okay. uh, like I said, it's not like I don't I don't feel less of me when I hear when I'm when people call me Julie. Well, I'll stick with that because I'd probably not say the other one correctly. Um, so you say 
I'm curious, you said boat people? Boat, boat people, boat people. Okay. So I think that when people hear that, we can we have a, maybe an imagery that comes to mind, but do you mind expanding on that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. So after, uh, so the Vietnam War ended in 1975, and uh, there were many people who, including my father, who faced political oppression and were sentenced to re-education camp. And so uh, many Vietnamese fled um, fled Vietnam by boat. And so that's why it's called boat people. And so they're um, so this happened um, in the 70s and um, through the, the mid-80s, and there were um, estimates of 800,000 who left this way. So, and this was a really dangerous passage, um, and I think what it really emphasizes is how people were pushed to leave. I mean, you don't, you don't leave that way unless you feel true fear of oppression. Um, my father was in re-education camp for three years. There were people who were there for over a decade. Yeah, it's... It's wild to think about the things that people go through that that we can only imagine or think of in movies. I have um, a little bit of a sidebar, but but similar. I have a friend. I used to live in San Diego, and I have a friend, and she actually learned. Um, we were when were how old were we at this time? We were probably in our late twenties, or yeah, late twenties. We must have been. And she always thought she was Vietnamese. They're in San Diego now. They moved, but that's what she always thought. She actually found out in her 20s from her dad that they were actually Cambodian. Oh, wow. But because of what was going on, they they didn't they didn't talk about the fact that they were Cambodian. They always mm-hmm. they always claimed Vietnamese because they were safer at that time to do that and then they just never talked about it again. Mm-hmm. Um so it's just it's interesting these backstories that can play so heavily into people's lives that we don't really pay attention to all the time. Yes. Or maybe most of the time, to be honest. <laughs> Traumatic events like wars cause a lot of um, identities to change too. So, yeah. So you came here. So when you arrived, you were you were like baby, baby, right? You were really baby. young. I, so I don't okay. remember the experience at all. Um, okay. There is a there's a film called Journey from the Fall that was produced in 2006 um, about the boat people and reeducation camp experience. It was based on hundreds of interviews with people who lived through that experience. My When um, when my mom watched it, she said it was very true to the experience um, that she had. So I recommend that um, that film, Journey from the Fall, if people want to learn more about that. Okay, good. I'll, I'm going to make a note of that. I don't think I've seen it myself. So what did your experience look like as when you're growing up? So you're in Washington. Did you Were you guys in Washington when you grew up? Yes. Yes. So okay. my, we landed in Seattle and um, we actually went Briefly, we were in, briefly in Florida, and my dad decided uh, that because that's where our sponsors were. My dad decided to um, to borrow money and to come back to Seattle and to make our life here in Seattle. And uh, growing up, I spoke Vietnamese until I was about five years old, and then uh, then going into the school system, my parents worked all the time, and also I grew up during a time when assimilation was really important, and it was more important to learn English. And so I didn't speak Vietnamese um, at home and. Though I could understand some spoken Vietnamese, I didn't really know it until I made a, uh, a decision to learn Vietnamese formally after I graduated from college. And so then uh, I studied, um, and then I studied actually in Madison, Wisconsin. They have a really great Southeast Asian language um, summer camp there. And uh, and then I, I, I lived in Vietnam for um, on and off for about five years and I became fluent in Vietnamese as an adult. So I always tell people that you can actually become um, fluent later on in life. So 
Interesting. So you, you spoke, that's what you spoke. That was your language until you were five. Mm -hmm. And then essentially you lost that because of this is off topic that I was Mm going to go down, but the assimilation thing is kind of, um, it's a little bit triggering to me, which is crazy, right? It shouldn't be. I'm, I'm white. I'm from America, but it's triggering to me because especially what you just said, there's this idea that you have to assimilate to a degree that you're forgetting other things. And that's the trigger for me. Mm-hmm. It's sure. I think it's definitely valuable to learn English if you're in an English speaking language and vice versa, wherever you are. But to feel like or to have a family feel like they have to forget the other pieces of themselves is a little bit triggering. Do you have thoughts on that? I mean, I, I also just think about it in terms of my parents were busy working all the time. I was a latchkey kid. I barely saw them growing up. And so they kind of just did what was easiest. And we were in school and we were speaking English most of the time. And then and they spoke English. And so it was just easy for them to speak in this mix of English and Vietnamese, um, whereas it would take them um, time and effort to honestly to, to be bilingual at home. So I don't I don't resent um, that. I just I just see it as that was um, that was the culture back then, and it's different now. And I think as a historian, I really appreciate that things change, and that's part of what's interesting, right? Like, why do things change? Why do our views change? Because now it's super popular to be bilingual, trilingual, and you see all these parents competing to get their kids put into these Mandarin immersion, Spanish immersion, French immersion classes. So, um, so, and it's just I, I was a product of my time. Well, I like that. I think that's a super healthy and really positive way to think about it. So mm-hmm. I like that a lot, actually. Are there any experiences that you remember? Well, maybe not even just from school, but that you remember from school growing up and or that you've had um, as an adult, as an Asian American that have impacted you or, or ways that you felt things were different expectation wise or society wise? You know, one of the things I realized is that um, how much um, how much privilege I have as an Asian, where I think if I did, if I, because of this, the, the, the idea of the model minority, if I didn't do so well on a test, I actually was given the benefit of the doubt. It was like, oh, well, it's probably just a bad test or something. I mean, I don't think that, um, so I think I actually had some privilege there. Uh, when I think about this in comparison to my black and brown friends, you know, um, growing up in, um, uh, through this the school system. So... That's interesting because because the bias is that all of course all Asians are absolute geniuses which it, it it could very well be a true bias but the idea is is that if the test if you didn't do well on the test it must be the test's fault or just like it was a bad day not the test okay. fault but that it was okay. you know it was just like it was just an off day and yeah the test is always right right but no I mean well and I can, you know and I I mean I there are definitely some subjects I did not do well in so. Um, so it's an ongoing process. You mentioned um, historian. So mm-hmm. I'm interested in your and your take on that. So you did your own research on Vietnam history, the Vietnam War specifically, and even into some writings, some historical writings yes. during that time. Mm-hmm. What can you share a little bit about yeah. what you learned? Absolutely. So my um, so I went to Berkeley to study um, to study history and. Um, and what I was taught in my classes, um, in my American history classes, was this view of the Vietnam War as being between the Vietnamese and the Americans. And the way that they portrayed the Vietnamese, or it was de facto the North Vietnamese. So, 
and my family, we're from South Vietnam, from the Republic of Vietnam. And, um, and so what I realized was, um, and then through talking with my, my dad and his friends and it was, oh, their view, their perspective of the war, our perspective, the South Vietnamese perspective was actually left out. And, um, and so that was just a really big, um, really big aha for me. And so I started to interview my dad and his friends. Um, and so, because there's, there's the Vietnam war is just seen as, okay, Vietnam and America. And what, what isn't really understood is, well, there's actually North Vietnam and South Vietnam. And so there was, there was communist Vietnam and there was, um, there was, uh, the Republic of Vietnam and South Vietnam. And so actually most of the people who are refugees from Vietnam are from South Vietnam. And so we were actually, the Americans were our allies. And, and so, but I think a lot of actually Americans think that the Vietnamese here are, are victims and, victims, whereas actually a lot of South Vietnamese, we were fighting for our own freedom and Americans, you were siding with us for that and we lost. So, so many people don't understand the South Vietnamese perspective. So I'll just give you, um, in so many like Apocalypse Now, um, Good Morning Vietnam, there's so many movies that just show this, the South Vietnamese as the sidekick to the Americans. And they don't actually see it as, well, actually the South Vietnamese they we were we we're our own country and we viewed ourselves as fighting for um fighting against this invasion from um from communism yeah, yeah you just spoke to me because this is not a perspective and this is why this is why i love conversations like this and this is why i love people that um take the time to dig into things like this obviously it was it was kind of you know readily available to you because it is your history and then you have a family perspective that you can grab onto and say, hey, you know, you lived through this. Tell me about it. Well, and actually, Heather, the thing is, a lot of people in my parents' generation didn't like to talk about it with their kids because it was really traumatic. And so then what happens is we go through school and we learn this version and we're like, oh, well, hmm, well, that was bad, you know? And so we actually, until we talk to our parents, do we get that history? And so there are some people who actually, there are some people in my parents' generation who talk about it, but other times it's actually like, I went through school and I was like, oh, well, why were we there? Or, you know, why was like, why this, why were we siding with South Vietnam? I mean, I just was at my friend's place the other day and his 12 year old son was like, oh, you're Vietnamese. I heard the South Vietnamese were corrupt. It's like, yes, they were corrupt. And so were the communists and so were the Americans. There was corruption all around. Right. And so, um, and that doesn't mean that just because there was, there were lots of bad elements that it wasn't worth fighting for. And so, I mean, and I think what a lot of people don't know is after the war ended, many people who sided with South Vietnamese military and government were punished. And that's why they fled. So I think um, that oftentimes when we think about uh, there's this American immigrant history and there's so much emphasis on what brings people to America you know, this economic mobility, that American dream. And there's, there are lots of, there's a lot of focus on all these Vietnamese refugees who made it and who are doing really well. And that's, you know, and that's true. And that's, and, and we're, we did that because also we have the freedom to do that here. And so there's also, there's also what we were leaving too. And I think that people don't understand that. 
It's interesting, actually, because it's like, well, why would people leave if finally Vietnam got freedom? There's that question that's not asked. Like, why would all these people leave? Yeah. And that's why these important, these conversations are so important because so in, in August, our theme was, was education. We're talking about education. And this, what you're saying here highlights one of the biggest challenges, in my opinion, with education, specifically surrounding, specifically surrounding history, because we're trying to play this game where I'm right and you're wrong, mm -hmm. but that's not the, that's not the line we're playing on. We're we're playing on perspective. Mm -hmm. So if we only listen to history from one person's perspective, that is absolutely not the full version of history. And then we've got people running around. When I'm saying people in in the United States, like mm -hmm. me, that I learned a version of history, and I I have parents that are from here and grew up here, so I don't have that engagement of conversations that may spark ideas. Oh, it doesn't look like I heard that version. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? I think these conversations are so important to share, not only with family, but like with friends, because yeah. how would we know otherwise? How do we know? Mm -hmm. Because the, the, the American narrative of the Vietnam War is really dominated by American guilt. We shouldn't have been there. And so every anniversary, it's like, oh, what are the lessons learned? How do we, how do we not have another Vietnam? And the fact is, wars are there to fight for ideals, you know, and people, sometimes people, sometimes we have to have wars and, and there are, um, and, and sometimes afterwards we only look at it through this lens of the winners or the losers. And we don't look at it through the lens of who experienced it and why, why did they, what were they going through? And I think in the U S I mean, particularly like it's amazing to be to the, the Vietnamese really big Asian population here. And I think largely misunderstood why we are here. Because I, I almost wonder if that sometimes there's like a, um, Americans take for granted the freedom that we have here. Oh, 100%. Oh, my gosh. There is a level of like, let me find the right word because I was going to use one that is a little more divisive than I want to use. Um, there is a level of entitlement. Mm -hmm. And I think that stems a lot from the fact that we have the freedom to not acknowledge that these things happen outside of movies. Mm -hmm. These are the real lives of real human beings. Mm -hmm. And yeah, and I'm not, you know, obviously you don't wish these tragedies on people. And there's only some certain, there's only a certain degree of education you can learn from conversation. If you haven't been through the experience, it doesn't touch you the same way. But needing to open up to the idea that there's more than just us. I don't know. I could go down a whole rabbit hole here. Yeah. And I mean, so when, so for my undergraduate research, I did um, interviews with 40, um, 40 uh, Vietnamese veterans um, in the South Vietnamese military. And then for my PhD, I wrote a biography of a South Vietnamese communist revolutionary who led the, uh, Chen Phan Zhou, who led the revolution um, in Saigon in 1945. And so I, I did both sides, right? I've like, I've studied communism. He was a huge historian of, um, he actually helped create, um, the, uh, the, the communist version of the history of the war. Um, and, and so for me, it's just really interesting. I'm fascinated by the different perspectives. I don't want to say that like, this is the truth or there's a single truth. I think that there are multiple truths. And I think it's so interesting when we can put them side by side and go like, oh, you see the world that way. Why is that? So, you know, in the movie Journey from the Fall that I mentioned, I showed that when I was living in Hanoi and that was in 2007. And, um, and when I 
when I turned on the lights, all my, like my Hanoian friends were just, what? That happened? I don't know that history because they've heard of re-education camps as these polite places where people go to school and learn about communism, not as prison camps. Yeah. So even it's, it's hap- so basically it happens everywhere. Yeah. The, the, everywhere. the version of, it's, yeah. So, and this seems a little strange because I know you just said that a lot of times we, we focus on what lessons were learned, but mm-hmm. I'm going to go to that in this case. When after doing your research, and obviously I'm sure it continues to some degree, but was there any big takeaway for you that you're able to apply, you know, in life and in business from yes, so many? It's, it's all just about different perspectives. And it's all just about starting conversations and being curious about why do you see things the way that you do? And, um, and why, do I see the, why do I see things the way that I do? And trying to understand that because it's, so the reason why I love history is because I think it sits at the intersection of social science and humanities. And so what I mean by that is um, social scientists believe that there is such a thing as truth. So they're constantly striving to find the truth. That's the scientist in them, right? And in humanities, everything is a story. Everything is constructed. And so history as a discipline actually sits right at that intersection where there's this, this tension of I'm looking for truth. And yet I kind of know there's no such thing. <laughs> so, and, and, and so it, we ha- history holds that tension. Um, and so for me, it really informs my work now, just that I have to be willing to, to acknowledge that there's so much I don't know. And I get to learn from other people. Um, and, and it's really, when are we brave enough to have those conversations and to also admit, like, I was wrong. I was wrong. So, I mean, I think that's why there are so many Vietnamese refugees who actually don't want to go back to Vietnam now because it's this fear of they fled. I mean, my parents never went back. They fled. It's just like, well, they were fleeing for something. And yet going to Vietnam now, it's, it's a really wealthy country. You know, like people are doing really well. Like when I lived there from 2002 to, to when I was last there in 2008, the economy is like totally boomed. Yeah. Well, and this is total speculation, but just after all of, and it is not anything to do with Vietnamese specifically, but just human nature. When we tend to push things down and not talk about them, we haven't dealt with some of the trauma that was associated. So the idea of going back, you know, even if it's beautiful Absolutely. and wealthy now, mm-hmm. is is uh, just almost insurmountable. And and it seems like it was insurmountable for some, or, or the choice, anyways. Mm-hmm. So you have some really. Obviously, you have a business related to respect as well. So you have a lot of big thoughts on respect. So I don't know if you're watching the same world that I am because we're just we're talking about perspective here. Yeah. So I understand we have different perspectives, but it feels like a really, really deep divide and just growing politically, socially, um, and we're just not respecting each other anymore. Like if it, it's like if you think this way and it's different than me, then you're automatically dumb. <laughs> rather than just thinking about things differently do you have what what can we do to regain at least a basic level of respect and also do it authentically so that we're not you know taking away who we are yeah um so i think that the first thing is we have to understand that respect is not universal it is not absolute and um we have different ideas of what respect looks like what it means and, um, and so oftentimes when people feel disrespected, the other person probably didn't mean to disrespect them. I mean, there are times obviously when someone is like, I am, I am intentionally disrespecting you, but oftentimes there are all these, these things that happen at work or at home. It's just, and one person feels disrespected and the other person was like, oh, oh, 
they might not even know because oftentimes the person who feels disrespected doesn't say anything, right? <laughs> they just and and um and so I think that um, first of all is just acknowledging that that there are different forms of respect. So that's I'm writing this book right now, um, and I've uh, created this this tool called the Seven Forms of Respect. And the idea there is that there are different ways that there are different forms that people um, give respect and also like to get respect. And a lot of this is informed by growing up in a bicultural household and living in five different countries, because there can be different there can be different cultural reasons for seeing um, punctuality, for example. So in the U.S. Um, and you know, I've lived in Germany. In Germany, time is really important. Punctuality is is important. At least people feel it should be important. Sometimes, like I don't even want to do it, but I feel like I should be on time, right? <laughs> um, and and when I lived in Vietnam, one of the things I learned is like, wow, time is rubber. They have this saying, time is rubber. It's fluid. It's not about being actually trying to stick to this these um, deep time commitments can feel too rigid. It's like what you're going to end this meeting our time together so you can go meet someone else and be on time with them. What? <laughs> right. And I wow. even had, um, remember when I lived there, people would cancel on me last minute and it kept happening. I was like, what is going on? This is so annoying. And so I finally asked a friend, a Vietnamese friend, he said, oh, no, they knew they could tell you ahead of time. But if they told you ahead of time, that would convey they were making a choice to not be with you. And it's better to, if there's an emergency, there was no choice. They could not, they, they, there's no choice. They, that's why. Yet if, if they tell you ahead of time, it would convey that they were making a choice not to be with you. So, you know, they were trying to be respectful. It was just a different way of being, th- their priorities were different. So, you know, and like that just really helped me understand like, oh, rather than feeling like you don't respect my time, you don't respect, or you, if you're not respecting my time, then you don't respect me. It's just, oh, actually they have a different concept of time. This is blowing my mind. I'm going to have to digest this a little bit because I, so I hear what you're saying is that, is that they knew earlier, they could have told you earlier, but they felt it was more respectful for you if you didn't realize that they knew earlier. They had a choice. That they had a choice because then it was like they were choosing someone else other than you. Yes. And for me, of course, I'm like, just tell me, just tell me the truth, you know, mm-hmm. just let me know in advance because I could have done this or that. But and so that's my perspective on it, mm-hmm. right? Is like, I want to know as early as possible because then I can modify whatever else I'm doing. But the other perspective on it that we're talking about is a saving of your feelings or the intention of saving mm-hmm. your feelings. Yeah. And it's just, it is. It really is. It's a different perspective entirely. It's a different perspective. And um, I mean, I didn't, uh, when I when I lived in the UK for the first time, that's when I realized how, um, as an American, how important time is. Because in the UK, if I asked, well, how far is it from Cambridge to London? They would actually tell me in kilometers. And I was like, that means nothing to me. And I realized I was used to hearing like, well, I need to know, is it 40 minutes by train? Is it an hour in traffic? Because Americans actually calculate by time. Even when they're asking, the question is, how far is it? Not how long is it going to take? But we assume in the question of how far is it, you're going to tell me how long is it going to take? Because that's actually what I care about, not not the distance. And we hold, you know, okay, so this is actually, the, the this is so interesting to me because it's not something that I've considered. I have a high value on time. I hate being late for things. It makes it gives me such anxiety because I put such a high value on time. 
And if, if I'm doing something and I waste someone else's time, then I've got guilt for that. And I, and I feel like it is definitely built into our system. We mm-hmm. at work, we have start times and we have end times and we have a bedtime and, you know, just all these various things and we're supposed to sleep this number of hours. So now I'm, now I'm really curious and thinking like, so how do other, other societies clearly function quite well without needing this construct, but somehow we've put such importance on it. And I don't want to put a, like a blanket statement on, you know, all Vietnamese don't care about time. Oh, right, right. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like, cause it is still really individual. And that's another, another, actually an aspect of it is thinking about the things that we, sh- so, um, so for the seven forms of respect, um, we've identified that there are these, uh, seven, seven different forms, um, and punctuality is one of them. There's procedure, information, candor, consideration, acknowledgement, and attention. And then we think about it in terms of these across these three dimensions. And so um, the first dimension is how you give respect versus how you like to get respect. And that's why um, you know think about the golden rule: do uh, treat people the way that you want to be treated. And I actually don't believe in the golden rule because um, because actually people may not want to be treated the way that I want to be treated. And here's the other thing. The way that you want to be treated might be different from how you want to treat people. Just oh, think about yes. that. This makes such <laughs> perfect sense. This absolutely right, so, makes perfect right, sense. So think about how you may love surprising people, but you don't want to be surprised. Yeah. You may love asking tough questions, but when someone asks you a question that makes you feel uncomfortable, you're like, mm. <laughs> think about that person who gives unsolicited feedback. And then when you give them unsolicited feedback, they get prickly. So we've actually... In our research, we've seen that people, the way that people like to give respect can differ, often differs from the way they like to get respect. And that is also influenced by the second dimension, uh, which is hierarchy. So in relationships, there's power dynamics, right? There's those who have more power, less power, equal power. And so the way that you expect to give and get respect can differ depending on that. So I'll give you another example. Someone was complaining to me about his, um, at his old job, his VP was constantly late to his team meetings and the, his team had to wait around. And, um, and he was like, oh, he was so uh, disrespectful. And then I said, well, was he late to his client meetings? No, he wasn't. He was never late to his client meetings, his meetings with his clients. His clients have more power than him. The people who report to him have less power than him. So it's not, um, that's another thing. It's just sometimes people feel hypocritical, like, oh, you know, I want this, but then I don't, you know, I want to get this, but I don't like to give it. Am I being hypocritical? It's like, actually, no, it's kind of human nature. Power exists. And so what I want for the seven forms of respect, it's about identifying that and just and naming it, you know? And then with the third dimension, we call it what matters to you. And, um, and this is versus what should matter to you. And so a lot of what we think of in terms of respect is, oh, I should do this. You know, think about what you learned from school and from social cues and from your parents and your family. I should do this. I don't actually care, but I should do it because it's the respectful thing to do. Maybe you actually don't care about time, but you know that you should care about it. So you really try, even though you actually don't care about it. So then we think about it in terms of what matters to you, what matters to you so much that you will do it no matter what, even if other people don't care, even if other people don't notice. So for me, punctuality is important. And I have friends who are always late and I will still tell them I'm going to be late, even if I know they're going to be later than me, right? Because it matters to me that because it's more about me than them. Because if I'm thinking about them, it doesn't, you know, 
doesn't matter to them. So, and then think about like, then we, there's the could do and the could have. Um, and that are the, the things that you're kind of ambivalent about. You do it because you know other people care about it, but it doesn't actually matter to you. And it doesn't, doesn't bother you to do it. So you'll just, you'll do it. And so this could be, I have a friend who knows punctuality matters to me and she's constantly late and she really strives to tell me when she's going to be late. Cause, and that's a could do for her. She can do it. It's just like, it's not a must do for her. And then there's the won't do the, or the won't have. And what that means is, um, I actually don't think that's respectful or it could even be disrespectful. And so going back to punctuality is, can be culturally based. Well, maybe rigidity on time is that's actually, then punctuality feels actually disrespectful to end a meeting because you have to go to another meeting or to box me in, to try to like box me in with your time schedule. Even acknowledgement is a really big one. So in the US, there's so much acknowledgement. Everything is amazing. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We all have these culture of appreciation and recognition, right? And yet in some other cultures, going back to Vietnam, I mean, I was told pretty early on when I was learning Vietnamese, you say thank you too much. It makes makes me, it feels too formal. So thank you is used in formal settings, but not actually with friends because then it feels also almost transactional. Like, oh, I did it so that you can say, I didn't do this so you could say thank you. You know, I did it because we just, we just help each other. I had a, um, a Vietnamese American friend who, who was like, oh my gosh, my parents never thank my boyfriend for when they do things. And then I explained it to her, well, because it's actually a sign of closeness for them not to acknowledge it. Because it's like, an, it's an expected thing. So if they acknowledge it, then it seems like it shouldn't be expected. Yeah. Okay. And it's transactional. It's formal. Wow. So, you know, okay. and so all of this, all of this is to say it's relative, right? And then going back to the things that like, thinking about what are the things that are, are important to me versus the things that I think should be important. Okay. So oftentimes what we see in our research is people say, I, I will be punctual. And yet, Mm, it doesn't matter to me as much if people are punctual. Then, but think about if punctuality actually matters to you and there are some people who are constantly late and you're like, it's okay, it's fine. But you feel it, you feel it. And there's like a little bit of resentment. It's like, ah, they're going to be late, uh, right? But no, it's no problem that you're late, right? We actually did this, um, we do team versions of this. And um, when I take people through workshops and I'm um, in a recent one, what we'll do is we'll ask people, hey, what are your top forms of respect that you like to give and that you like to get? And then, um, and then, uh, and, but before we ask or before we show that to everyone else on the team, we ask the team, guess what this person likes to give and guess what this person likes to get? Okay. So this one person guessed punctuality as a top one for, he said, punctuality is a top get respect for me. No one on his team, no one on his team guessed that for him. And it was like, okay, are you going around saying it's not a big deal and you're letting all these people be late and they think it's not a big deal because you constantly say it's not a big deal and yet here it is, you actually care about it. So how often do we actually care about things that we don't name, that we don't say because we think that we should not be bothered, that it's petty to be bothered. And so with, um, with the seven forms of respect, the idea is how do, we, how do we name what we need and how do we be okay with it? Because... You can say, I can say like, hey, I need this. I know you can't give it to me. I just want you to know I like it. Even if I know you're busy and you've got kids and you've got to pick up and you have all these other things and you can't be on time, I just want you to know it's important to me and that those two things can coexist. So is the way that we can 
be more respectful authentically really just boil down to communicate. So first of all, understanding what other people, how other people perceive and what they need and communicating what we need and then just leaving it at that. Is that, is that what it is? Because I'm thinking of myself, right? So the punctuality thing. So if someone, Mm -hmm. so if I have a friend coming over and they, and I'm like, just picture me sitting at my house, twiddling my thumbs and I'm waiting for them to show up, right? And they were supposed to show up at one in the afternoon and now it's two in the afternoon. By two in the, I am boiling. I am like, are you kidding me? You are so disrespectful. You are wasting my time. But to them, they're just like, whatever happened, it's no big deal. Now, by the way, I don't have any friends that would do that because they know I would be boiling. <laughs> but but the whole point would be is, how do I not feel disrespected and and subsequently respect that it's just not their priority is not my priority? Then the second part is to have a conversation about it and to say, hey, um, this is why this is important to me. And to understand why it is or isn't important to them. And so that you kind of, you have to kind of reach an agreement. So there's no, there's no code. Sometimes people are just, oh, now that I know this person's forms of respect, I will always do those things. It's like, no, actually you won't always be able to. There are going to be times where we can't. There are going to be times where we actually don't even want to because maybe your must have is a won't do for someone else, right? And so you just have to have a conversation about it. And, and sometimes even just letting the other person know at least like they know now, right? Because otherwise what happens is a lot of people just hold it in and they just feel disrespected. So think about how much emotional energy goes around guessing. We try to guess what other people's forms of respect are. That We may even do things that they don't even care about, but we think that they care about it. And how much time would we save if we could actually name, hey, this is actually what I care about. And okay. then being curious. Because it's really like the second part is to say, huh, why do I care about that? So for me, my mom was, uh, my parents worked really long hours. My mom would always pick me up really late from school and the um, the staff would have to wait. And I felt a lot of shame around that. And I was like, when I grow up, I'm not going to do that. So think about how someone could have that experience. And so for me, I reacted to that. Someone else could have that exact same experience. Being like, what's the big deal about being late? My mom was always late, right? But how much more, Heather, do you understand me now that I told you that story? So a lot. And actually, interestingly enough, I understand myself too, because it's, it really, it's all of these things really play together. The, the bias and the respect and the conversation and the curiosity, all of those things interwoven Mm -hmm. just is so helpful in expanding our view of things. Mm -hmm. And something that I've been working on personally that I don't know if anyone listening probably can understand is letting go of expectation. So there's Mm -hmm. an expectation that someone else is going to respect what I respect, or they're going to respect me the way I want to be respected, or like your golden rule, which is, I don't know how I've never thought of it that way, That, but it makes so much sense. It's like, it sounds like a beautiful thing, Mm -hmm. do unto others as others would do unto you, right? But that's not how we operate. It's almost, I mean, we're all striving for some sort of ideal, right? But it's almost like it's too idealistic mm-hmm. that it doesn't make sense because it's like all about us. And there's no universal. I mean, that's the thing. And and so in terms of, no, it's, I don't, it's, it's not so much about letting go of expectations. It's about understanding our expectations and understanding someone else's expectations. Because you don't want to get to a point where like, I don't care. Because in reality, I do. There's some things I just care about. 
right? And how much, how often do we just like suppress what we care about? So we could be like, I should just totally not care. No, care. Just talk about it. And at the very least, you'll at least know each other more. It's like giving feedback, right? It's like, and that's the third part actually that we work on you know, um, in our workshops. It's like helping people have those tough conversations where they name, hey, you did this thing. This is the way it made me feel. This is why that punctuality is important to me or whatever the form of respect is important to me. Um, how do you feel about it? And what happens if we don't have this? And what could happen if we do do this, right? Because it's it's kind of about reaching compromise and, and understanding that you're not going to always get it all the time. What I find is most people don't even have a conversation about it, though. They just go around feeling res- disrespected. Yeah, just quiet and feeling upset about yourself. Yeah. And as far as um, the expectation thing, because I totally agree with you, just to clarify, it would be letting go of your expectation that someone else's expectations are going to be the same as yours. Yes, yes, exactly. So not not your own expectations. I would consider those, those are going to be your standards and absolutely Mm -hmm. do not let go of those. Mm -hmm. Um, But acknowledging that other people don't necessarily fall in line with that same mindset and that's okay. Yeah, yeah. I love how interconnected these all are. Now, when you talk about your workshops, is this... Is this both the um, seven seven levels of respect and the curiosity based? So or is curiosity, it more curiosity based is based? my company, and then okay. um, and then seven forms of respect is um, is one of our um, is one of the tools that we created. And so in this, I have um, the seven forms of respect workshops for individuals, and then and also for um, for teams because teams can have their forms of respect too. So it's, um, and so it's, it's what a team thinks that they, um, is respectful for one another. So you know how oftentimes when people are, they talk about culture fit, like how do we find someone who's a culture fit? And so I find that, um, people confuse the word culture, company culture, organizational culture, and they think it, they confuse it with vision and mission. And that's aspirational. And the way I think about culture is it's what you do. It's not what you say you do. Because quite because people do what their leader does, not what they say they do. How often do you hear leaders say, I care about this, this, and we do this, this, and they do something totally different. So so then when we do, when we work with teams, what we're trying to identify is, well, what do you do right now? What do you think you as a team do right now? And then what do you think that you need to do and that you're lacking? And then we actually talk about the nature of the work. And then from, um, and because the when we talk about the nature of the work that they do, that can actually make things feel a little more objective. And then we talk about, well, what are the forms of respect that you need to carry out um, your mission? And because that way it can feel like we are all on this team to do this shared work. And so there are going to be certain forms of respect that we need to give each other that serve that. And so, for example, I mean, like if you think about an ER room, can you really expect punctuality in an ER room when things are constantly, you can't have set times, right? In an emergency room, just because like, it's more like, which one is more of an emergency right now? <laughs> like, what do we push aside constantly? Like, right, you can't have punctuality. <laughs> and so, so that is not a form of respect that you're going to have in an emergency room. In manufacturing, you better have punctuality, right? <laughs> because there are set, set, like, here that this time this time and you know and it also could depend on could depend on the industry could depend on the team and and so 
the forms of respect can actually help companies define their culture, especially for prospective employees, because it's just, hey, this is what we do. Um, here, we really care about, with each other, we really care about procedure. We are very rule-oriented. Um, we care about candor. We will tell each other how it is. Um, and we also uh, we also care about attention. We don't multitask when we're with each other. Uh, when I was at a big tech company, I, I didn't have this tool. You know, I didn't have, I just created this tool over the past um, couple of years is when I was at this, working at this big tech company, I realized, oh, there is total lack of punctuality, total lack of attention, high emphasis on candor, high emphasis on acknowledgement and high emphasis on information, which is giving access to um, access to information. And if, if I could have known that, I'd be like, oh, I shouldn't feel bad if people are multitasking when I'm in a meeting and I shouldn't expect, and it's okay for me to be late to meetings because everyone is, <laughs> it's okay. You know? And so, and, and if I, if you could tell that to someone, they could say like, oh, I like that or I don't like that. That's going to be a culture I like, or it's, it's going to be one that I don't like. And when you ask them, when we take teams through this, what can happen is when the team discusses, this is what we need for our work, it actually takes it a little bit away from the leader. Because oftentimes when we don't have those conversations, what happens is the leader sets the forms of respect. Whatever their forms of respect are actually becomes everyone else's. And like when, when I do this with teams, the leader's like, oh, well, my forms of respect, well, it looks like our forms of respect are what my forms of respect are. Do you think there's a reason why? <laughs> so, and so it kind of separates it and helps people understand what's the, what, what do we need? And that could be different from the leader. And it helps actually inform the leader to understand, oh, maybe I need to be adjusting for in when we're working as a team, not me all the time, but like at, when we're a team, we have different expectations with each other. Yeah. Cause I, in a team collaboration and what you would say, like maybe skin in the game, it's, yeah. it's a matter of morale. And, and do you feel mm -hmm. like you're being respected, right? We're using this yeah. word, this respected and being respected means that you're heard, not just fall in line and do what I say. Mm -hmm. I love that. So what are you working on now? What are you passionate about right now or any projects that you're working on that you want to share? That is what I'm working on right now. I actually have an Indiegogo campaign going on for okay. my book right now. Um, and uh, we were really excited to, um, we were actually really excited to meet our goal in the first 18 hours. And, um, and so, you know, this is, this is professional development, nonfiction category of Indiegogo. So we were super excited to trend for the first three days right next to cyber frog figurines and the world's smallest video game player or something like that. Um, awesome. <laughs> um, and so, and I'm also, I'm just a, so that's what I'm working on. I'm working on the book that should um, come out by the end of October. Um, I'm self-publishing it. Um, I'm a big advocate of self-publishing now, actually, because of my experience with my first book, which was, um, uh, which was about the South Vietnamese military um, experiences in those interviews that I did as an undergraduate. And just to give you a little bit of backstory on that, I wrote that in 2001 when I graduated. And my dad, a couple of years ago, he really was just like, can you publish it? Can you just publish that book? You know, it would be really important for people to have that. And I, I didn't want to because it's like, I don't want to go through a traditional publisher. And he's like, well, you know, Amazon makes it so easy. And I was just, okay, dad, I'll, I'll do it. And um, I love that your dad is pushing this and he's like, do it through Amazon. You'll be fine. 
<laughs> yeah. And, you know, and, and what I realized through that experience was um, I had a lot of internalized elitism and I thought a real book can only be one that's published by a traditional publisher because I need to be validated externally. And, and what I realized was, wow, how many voices don't get shared when we think that they have to be validated by a traditional publisher? And, and so now, I mean, when working on this book, I was like, oh, I'm doing, I'm self-publishing. So, you know, I had friends who were like, why don't you go big and get an agent and do this? And it was like, well, first of all, that takes so long and I don't want to wait that long. <laughs> and, and having had this experience, I realized like, actually, I will have a lot more freedom to, um, to write what I want to write and, um, and market the way I want to market. Um, I'm really, I, I'm also a passionate advocate of just getting more women and people of color to write leadership and professional development books, because, you know, as much as we talk about, um, diversifying leadership and diversifying, um, um, yeah, diversifying the, the boardroom leadership ranks. I mean, Heather, most management and leadership books are written by white men. And so, Essentially, what we're doing is we are just changing the actors, but keeping the same scripts. And so with Curiosity Base, we do research, we promote other, um, we promote um, uh, uh, essentially any books that are related to leadership. They could be memoirs written by leaders um, that aren't written by white men. So, and I'm a big fan of leadership books written by white men. <laughs> I'm a huge fan. I'm, I'm not rejecting them by any means. I'm just, I want to promote with a curiosity base. We just want to promote other, other writers as well. Um, not endorsing them, just promoting them, just saying like, there's a lot of writers actually. And we haven't done the study yet. I'd actually expect that a lot of them are self-published because they can't, they're, we're told, oh, is this going to be commercially viable? I'm so glad you're doing what you're doing. And it is so important. I think we're stuck in this idea that if we start promoting women of color or BIPOC people, that somehow that discounts what other people are doing, and it doesn't. It's just what we were talking about in terms of history. There are a lot of perspectives out there, and if we're only getting one, we are really doing absolutely everybody a disservice. Absolutely everybody. So I can, I agree with you more. Um, couldn't agree with you more. And um, so rapid fire, last, last three questions. Yes doesn't really have to be rapid fire. You can talk at a slower pace. Um, but the first one would be, what would you like more people to understand about your culture, the Vietnamese culture or Vietnamese American, however you see it? Yes. And so that goes back to the, um, I, I would like people to understand that um, many of the Vietnamese Americans here are from South Vietnam and that um, and we came here as refugees um, fleeing political oppression that there's a push factor, not just this wanting to make a better life. There's that too. Just There's also a push factor. I love it. And actually, since you said it, I'm going to have you tell us what your book was, because it sounds like we can get maybe more information about that from your book from 2001. Um, yes. Yeah, so it was actually in 2000, um, 2019 is, oh, when I, uh, is when I did it. Okay. And I published my undergraduate thesis from 2001 in 2019, and it is called Their War, the Perspectives of the South Vietnamese Military in the Words of Veteran Immigrants. And it's based on oral histories I did. And it's available? On Amazon. On Amazon. 
Okay. So we'll be able to, I'll, I'll find it and I'll link it. I'll make sure to link it because I, I want to, well, number one, support, but number two, you know, you triggered some thoughts in my mind that I'm like, well, apparently I need to know more because I don't know a whole lot, to be honest, in regards to how that all went down. Heather, you are not alone. Most people don't. Yeah. That's, that's, that's the thing. It's like, oh my gosh, how is it that a community of 2 million people here are so misunderstood? Well, I think the idea of not wanting to talk about stuff has has stopped some things. Because if we don't talk about it, it didn't happen, right? I was like, even Ken Burns' big Vietnam War documentary does not interview any South Vietnamese veterans in the U.S., only in Vietnam. Really? Yeah. Well, you gave us some some great tools, so I'm glad. So we'll, I'm going to make sure to link your book and the movie. And then um, what are five words that you would use to describe yourself? Mm, a connector, curious, win-win, mm, optimistic, and strategic. Love it. And I also, by the way, I won't take away from your words, but I like the word driven for you. Because <laughs> in you. looking at your bio, in looking at everything that you've done, PhD in history from Cambridge, all kinds of honors, where would you like to direct everyone? And again, I'm going to link everything in the show notes, but where would you like everyone to go to learn more and connect with you? I think uh, connect people to the formsofrespect.com website. That'd be great. Perfect. Perfect. Thank you so much for joining. This was awesome. I feel like we probably could have kept going for a while because I have a lot more questions, but we have to stop sometime, right? Thank you so much, Heather. I really enjoyed this conversation too. Well, I guess it's true what they say. The more you learn, the more you realize you don't know. The goal with Diversity on Fire is to inspire you to think more deeply, and I hope today's conversation with Julie Pham did just that. Don't forget to check the show notes for links where you can connect with Julie, check out her book, and keep in touch so you can get her upcoming book in October of 2021. To connect with us on social media, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, also join our Facebook group so you can keep the conversation going even after the episode airs. Don't forget to hit subscribe wherever you're listening now, and please share the show with everyone you know so more people can join in these important conversations. I mean, you don't you don't lead that way unless you feel true fear of oppression. Thank you.